was uh, some of us in the church are reading through the Bible and the 90-day um, period. This week we're in Isaiah and Jeremiah, and this starts the portion of the Bible, this big chunk in the middle of the Bible that um, is referred to as the prophets. So it starts here with Isaiah and goes all the way through the rest of the Old Testament, finishes with Malachi before the New Testament starts. And what's, what are these writings about? What is a prophet? What is prophecy? Um, often you hear something like prophetic um, word. Often people think of something predicting the future. Uh, and a lot of what is in the prophets is talking about what's going to happen, what's coming up, um, but it's not limited to that. It's broader than that. And really what a prophet is is simply a person that God has decided to speak through so that the prophet says, hey, I have something that God is saying. Um, and God's decided, like, I want to use this person to speak um, something to a, a group of people, to an individual, to someone. So, so pretty much a prophet, and the prophets is just full of things that God wants to say to people and that God wants to say to us. So what, what kinds of things does God want to say? Um, and as, as I read through Isaiah, as you look at the prophets, you'll, you'll find that there's really kind of two categories of things that God has in mind that he wants to say to us. And it's really things that a parent would want to say to their kids. Uh, God has some warnings that he wants to give us, and he has some encouragements that he wants to give us. He wants to warn us when he sees that our actions are going to lead us and others into destructive places. He wants to warn us that the path we're headed down is not going to be a good one. Um, he warns us of the consequences for those actions, where it's going to take us. And he also warns us that if we continue in a certain path, he may do things to protect those we might hurt by going in that direction. Um, he might defend people that we are about to hurt. He might stop us from doing things that we're going to do. He warns us that he, he may take action um, to do those. And some of these warnings that he gives in the prophets are uncomfortable to hear. Um, it, you know, you may have heard some people describe the God of the Old Testament as a very vengeful, wrathful, angry, doom and gloom kind of God. And then the, the God of the New Testament is, you know, loving and kind and forgiving and all of this. And harsh part of the places where people get that from is here from the prophets, because there's some pretty strong language. God says he's going to do some pretty seemingly harsh things. And we read it and we go, God. That seems a little harsh. I mean, does it, is it really, does it really need to go there? Um, do the people you're talking about really deserve this kind of treatment? The things that you say are going to happen to them, the things that you are going to do. I mean, where's the grace? Where's the forgiveness? <clears throat> isn't there, an, isn't there another better way to do this? And really, I think that reaction comes down to this idea of, <clears throat> it seems that some of God's actions are not in line 
with what we think a loving person would do in his position. So we wrestle with that. What do we do with that? What do we do when we see some things that are uncomfortable for us that we don't quite understand? I think that's one of the questions that as if you're reading through these prophets in the next couple weeks or as you come across them in your reading whenever, that's a question to sit with. That's a question to wrestle through. What What's going on here? What is God saying? What is God doing? Why is he doing what he's doing? And, and there's not necessarily going to be a quick and easy answer that is going to be like, oh, okay, I understand everything now. It's gonna it's gonna be hard. There's gonna be some uncomfortable things. But I encourage you not to just avoid it or say I'm not going to go there because these uncomfortable things are helpful because we don't not any of us are to a place where we fully understand God yet or understand what He's up to or understand where we are. And so these uncomfortable places are an opportunity for us to learn more. So so sit in that discomfort a little bit, sit in that place where you're not sure what's going on and ask God to just slowly reveal a bit and to encourage you in those places. Uh, as, as I wrestled with it this week, one, one thought came to mind that maybe help you, maybe might help you in this dialogue when we don't understand why God's doing some of the things and like, how could it be loving? Um, for those of you who don't know, I have two sons one one's nine one is one and one of them you can probably figure out which one um recently says things to me sometimes like if you really love me then you would blah 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 maybe it's you would let me play this video game for longer or you would let me eat these foods and not these foods or if you really love me you wouldn't ask me to help with the dishes you just let me go do whatever i want and in his mind at least part of what's going on feels like his sense of what my loving actions towards him would be is that I wouldn't impose on anything, impose anything on him that he doesn't want to. Um, So he has a perspective of what he thinks is good for him. Now, obviously as adults, we see that not everything that our kids think is good for them is actually good for them. We have a different perspective. We have a broader perspective. We see more. We understand more than they do at times. And so we take actions and do things and say things that they experience as, you are not loving me. When in fact, we are loving them. They just don't quite understand what's going on. So our relationship with God is like that in the sense that as our kids don't understand some of the things that we see, we don't understand some of the things that God sees. So thinking about when we're in that place where we don't understand, where we're wrestling with, how can this be a loving thing? Remember that perhaps we just don't see it. And it's hard to do that because we feel like we're adults now. We see things, we know things, but to, but to trust him. So he has some of these warnings. And secondly, he has some encouragements for us. And these encouragements really take the form of reminding us of his unconditional love for us, of his unending love for us, for his desire to find us to find life in him, 
by trusting in him rather than trusting ourselves. Uh, his encouragement that he's not going to stand by idly, but he's going to come and save us and heal us and act on our behalf, defend us. He's going to bring mercy and grace and forgiveness. And all that you can find right here in the prophets too. Um, you just might not remember this. It's there in the midst of all these other things. So we'll see in the passage this morning how, how these two things are working together for God to speak um, his words to us. These these warnings and these encouragements. So what does it look like in this context in Isaiah? Uh, first, he starts in chapter 1, <clears throat> and he's addressing uh, the nation of Israel here in this first part. And he's calling them out for some of the ways that they're not um, acting in ways that's going to bring about life for them and for others. So, you know, he, he says, your hands are full of blood. You know, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. So the first thing that we learn about God and what he cares about is that <clears throat> he's not okay with people being oppressed. He's not okay with those who cannot stand up for themselves being taken advantage of. He's not okay with the, the weak or the those that don't have power being used by those that do. Um, Israel was doing that. Of course, those words sound awfully familiar to us today, too, that our world is full of experiences and things in which one group of people is oppressing another group of people where the poor are not taken care of, but used and abused for the benefit of the rich. <clears throat> we'll, we'll come back to that in, in our context in a minute. Chapter 19, God is talking to Egypt mainly. And you know, the first, we were, uh, I'll read a few of the verses, but all the way up to 16 is God just saying to Egypt, hey, you, know, you guys have been the oppressors, and there's going to be some consequences now for that, a prophecy against Egypt. You know, see the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him, and the hearts of the Egyptians melt with fear. I will stir up Egyptian against Egyptian, brother will fight against brother, neighbor against neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. The Egyptians will lose heart, and I will bring their plans to nothing. They will consult the idols and the spirits of the dead, the mediums and the spiritists. I will hand the Egyptians over to the power of a cruel master, and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. Now, the Egyptians were perhaps the greatest oppressors of the nation of Israel. For 400 years, the Israelites lived in Egypt and were enslaved, and it was a horrible situation. They were abused at one point, right near the end of that 400 years, as when Moses was being born. Uh, the leaders of Israel, the leaders of Egypt, decided that um, they felt threatened by the Israelites. So every Israelite baby boy that was born was ordered to just be killed. All of them, no matter what. God rescued a lot of them. Um, God mitigated that, but 
but there was this huge oppression. And at the end of this chapter, Isaiah talks about the Assyrians. And the Assyrians were another oppressor of Israel. Um, so Egypt and Assyria, perhaps the two greatest oppressors of Israel. God is talking about what he's going to do as a result of that. Assyria was the kingdom to the east of Israel. And during sort of the middle of the years that Israel was in the promised land before they got exiled, um, Assyria came and conquered most of the northern part. If you remember that um, after Solomon, Israel split into two kingdoms. The ten tribes in the north split away, and then Judah and Benjamin, Judah and I think Benjamin in the south, the two that were left in the south, they split. And the northern ten got conquered by the kingdom of Assyria and deported, and they were oppressed by them for a long time. So God is expressing again, I'm not okay with this happening. I'm not okay that these things are going on. And <clears throat> I'm going to do some things, not so much for the purpose of exacting revenge or because God enjoys punishing or that he's trying to even even the score. Um, but God's purpose in bringing some of these consequences to bear, um, there's a couple there's a couple reasons that it seems this is going on. Um, I think one of the one of the reasons we find it hard and seems harsh is that we look at it from the perspective of how God is treating the oppressors. And, and we're like, is, isn't there supposed to be grace? Isn't there supposed to be forgiveness? Like, is it really all that bad? Um, but God is not necessarily looking at it from that perspective as much as he is looking at it from the perspective of those that are being oppressed, those that are being killed, those that are being mistreated, those that are being taken advantage of. And he loves them so much that he cannot stand for that to happen for very long. And at some point he says, enough, like, I'm not going to allow this to happen to this group of people anymore. Like, it's just enough, and I'm going to come, and I'm going to, you know, stand up for them. I'm going to step in and defend them, which may result in some violence against the oppressors. It's going to result in some pushback against those that are oppressing the people. Um, I mean, imagine if, you know, your kid was being attacked by someone physically and, you know, you're going to step in and defend your child. And if that requires some physical defense against the person who's attacking them or attacking you, then, you know, you're going to do that, not because you enjoy inflicting pain or violence on somebody, but because you're focused on the defense of the one that you love. And God here is focusing on the defense of the one he loves. Israel in this situation, but in other situations, it's Egypt, it's Assyria, it's 
it's, it's everybody and anybody, you know, like God. And, you know, this sort of brings to light the situation that we are in right now in, in our country, in the world, where just the awareness and the engagement with some of the injustices that have been going on for a long time is coming to the forefront. And as we wrestle with that, one of the things that it's good to know is that when we feel the injustices that are being done deeply, God feels it even more. That he is there with us. That when we feel like we see something, we're like, that is not okay. God is right there with us. He's like, yes, that is not okay. I see it. I'm with you. Like, I feel it too. I see it too. And I'm going to be the defender of those who are being oppressed. I'm going to step in and do something. We may not know what that will look like or when and how that's going to come, but it's good to know that God is with us in those feelings. Um, so in these in these two passages that we're looking at, it's when God sees the injustice, sees what's going on, he, he steps in and he defends. He, he steps in and he brings some consequences to bear on those that are doing the things that are not okay with him. But he doesn't just leave it there. As we talked about, his goal is not to just bring justice. His goal is not just to make things even between us and him or between us and other people. Because if that was all God's plan, if that was all his goal, then we'd, he'd simply come and just sort of wipe us off the map. And the, 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 the message in here would just be all doom and gloom. But in both of these, you see that there's this balance of um, his warnings, but then these words of encouragement. If we go back to chapter one, when he's talking to Israel, you know, verse 18, he says, come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. So he's just said, you know, take your evil deeds out of my sight, stop doing wrong, defend the oppressed, do all these things you have been doing. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. And you think, okay, he's about to say, like, what he's going to inflict on us to make it even. But no, he says, when we settle the matter, here's how it's going to be settled. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. So he says, look, yes, there's these things here that are not okay. But the way that it's going to be solved and fixed is not for you to bear the whole brunt of the consequences of it. But rather, somehow, your sins are going to be cleansed. They're going to be white as snow. And... This is foreshadowing, obviously, what Jesus accomplishes for us, and that God is going to step in to heal and fix the things that we can't. Um, and, and he's going to do these things not just for those that we think are, are good or those that are, you know, the people of God. So in the Old Testament, it's like the Israelites, okay, God's going to do this for the Israelites, but leave everyone else to their own. No, 
Isaiah 19 is fascinating because the end of the chapter makes this turn again from these warnings to a picture of encouragement, a picture of redemption, a picture of reconciliation. So in 16, he, he continues a little bit of this last part of his warning. In that day, the Egyptians will become weaklings. They will shudder with fear at the uplifted hand that the Lord Almighty raises against them. And the land of Judah will bring terror to the Egyptians. Everyone who, to whom Judah is mentioned will be terrified because of what the Lord Almighty is planning against them. In that day, five cities, now here's the beginning of the term, you can see. In that day, five cities in Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and will swear allegiance to the Lord Almighty. One of them will be called the city of the sun. So you see there's, there's a change beginning to happen, happen that God is bringing about. 19, in that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign of witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. So, so people are beginning to turn to God and put their trust in him and worship him in Egypt when they hadn't been before when they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender. And he will rescue them. So you see, Egypt was the oppressor, but now they're experiencing oppression. And they respond by seeking the Lord for help. And he comes and rescues them. So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And in that day, they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings. They will make vows to the Lord and keep them. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. He will strike them and heal them. He will strike them and heal them. They will turn to the Lord and he'll respond to their pleas and heal them. So this is such an interesting picture. In the, in the same sentence, we see this warning and encouragement at the same time that he will strike them and heal them. So the best that I can kind of come up with of what is going on here, uh, and I'm sure I'm only getting a piece of it, is that you know, God bringing a lot of these difficulties and consequences and, and harsh things in our mind to Egypt, to Assyria, to Israel, to whoever he's bringing it to them, that his goal is not to destroy. His goal is not to just take revenge and inflict whatever it was that is due to us. But rather he has a goal somehow that when we experience some of these things, that it will lead to our healing, that it will lead to our redemption, that it will lead to us turning to him for help. Um, and perhaps you know, being struck in this way for Egypt was the only way that they were going to turn from where they were to seeking God for help. I don't know. Maybe, you know, but back to that place of maybe God knows things that I don't know. I think, gosh, isn't there another way that they could have turned from what they were doing to find life in God? Maybe not. I don't know. But, but at least what you see here is that God's desire when he brings some of these, it says, 
strike Egypt with a plague, when he brings some of these just hard things, that his goal is that it will end up for healing for them. And then these last verses is just this beautiful picture. Amazing. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. So God finishes this picture of, you know, sort of the, the warning and the consequences coming, and turning that to healing, and to seeking God for help, to this picture that the two greatest oppressors of Israel, Egypt and Assyria, together with Israel, become this people of God that he calls his own and blesses, and now they become one together in receiving the goodness of God. That this is this is the trajectory, this is the place where he's wanting to go. And so, you know, I just imagine the bitterest of enemies that you can think of in, in modern times and, and think of them, God working things so that they come together in the end to both worship God and um, receive from him grace and mercy um, and become a blessing, become blessed. So God desires to bring that reconciliation and that that path may not look, you know, like what we think it's going to look like. But part of it is that God cares so much about people that he's going to bring some justice. And as we think about that, the last thing I want to talk about this morning with you is that it, it makes sense for us, if we're following God, to try to find a way to participate in God you know, defending the oppressed, the poor, the fatherless, the widows. As he says to Israel in chapter one, you know, do these things, be a part of this. You are not defending the oppressed. You're not, you know, standing up for the fatherless. You're not there with the poor. You're not there with the widows. I want you to be there. I want you to defend them. I want you to work for justice to find that place. Um, and so God wants us to participate somehow. But when we hear that call, and in our hearts, we feel the injustice of things. We want to do something about it. We're tempted to fall on maybe one side or the other of the middle that God's calling us to. Now, one side of that is that we're, we're moved to action. We see the injustice, and we're like, we need to make this right. We need to fix the injustice. We need to um, take this on. And if... And if we do that, and if we take it on, and but rely on our own abilities, our own resources, our own strength, our own ideas, our own wisdom as people, um, we are going to find that there's some limitations to what we can accomplish um, in going that direction when we're just relying on our own abilities. Um, you know, the biggest limitation that underlies that approach is that 
we in ourselves do not have the resources, power, or ability to fix the injustice of the world. Uh, you can, I think you can see the limitations of our power, maybe in an extreme example. Uh, think about someone, uh, someone's been murdered by another person unjustly. They didn't deserve it. They, they killed them. This person's dead. Now, what is, what is justice? You know, what fixes this problem? You know, to say, okay, well, he killed someone. Let's, you know, let's kill this person who killed this other person. Did, did that fix what was broken? Did that, fix, you know, this person's not going to come back to life because we killed this one, right? So we can't, we don't have, we're, we're powerless to fix that situation. We're powerless to undo what's been broken. And I think that communicates that we're powerless to undo the smaller things that happen to so if we're if we try to attack injustice simply from our own power with our own strength, we're going to fall short of achieving what we want to. And let's say even if we did have the power to do it, we don't. But even if we did, there's a couple other problems. One, we can't even probably figure out clearly all the time what a just thing would be. We don't have enough information. We don't see things clearly enough. We only have our perspective which is always going to come with some amount of partiality, however much we try to be impartial. We're not going to be able to judge fairly or clearly to even figure out what would be just, even if we had the power to do it. So, you know, you look at this and you're like, oh, well, maybe it's just hopeless. We can't fix it. Uh, and that might drive us to the other extreme of, since we don't feel like we can do it right or get it all right or fix everything, then we just step back and are frozen in, in action and we don't do anything. We go, well, I can't, I don't have the power to fix this. I, I'm not sure what to do. I don't want to make it worse. I'm just not going to do anything. And, and maybe we use the reason, well, God's going to do it anyway. God's going to be the one that fixes it anyway. So maybe we should just leave it to him and step back and not do anything. But clearly, that's not where God is leading us either because to the Israelites, he says, do this, be a part of this. And of, and of course, if we think about love, we think that we see someone being oppressed and we do nothing. It's like, are we, we're not really acting out our love for that person, are we? So where, so the middle ground that we discover in this is to, is to step in and do something but to do it with the perspective that we are participating in a greater work of God that he is doing to defend the oppressed, to bring reconciliation between enemies, to stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves. That when we take action, we realize that it's not our plans, it's not our wisdom, it's not our own ideas, but that we're finding ways to step in to participate with God, that will look different than taking action based on our, our own abilities, our own wisdom, our own ideas of what justice should look like. And, and God then is able to use us and wants to use us to do what he's doing. And then we get to participate in the joy of 
seeing this reconciliation happen, to be with those who are in a position where they, they are being oppressed or they are being taken advantage of or they are in this place. We, if we are there and participating in whatever way we can in what we see that God is doing. Um, what exactly that's going to look like is, I think, something for each of us to engage with God about. Look at our situation. Who are we connected with? What places can, do we see God working? What places do we see God doing these things? How could we uh, step in and participate? Um, but but that, that way, because one of the dangers of relying on our own ideas to fight injustice is that we end up becoming an oppressor when we're trying to undo oppression. Because if we're, if we have the idea of this is how justice needs to go forward and we are dependent on our own idea and our own plan, which is limited and is not seeing the whole thing, not seeing it anywhere, then someone else is going to be working in a different way. And we're going to look at them and say, no, that's wrong. No, that's not the way to approach, you know, these things, right? And we're going to say, no, it has to be my way. It has to be this way. We're going to begin to oppress those other people who are doing things differently than us. But when we rely on God, we can let that go. And we can say, you know what? Like God is doing things. I'm going to participate the best I can, but I'm not going to hold on that this is the only way to do it. It's my only plan. Uh, but, but it sets us free to do something, to participate, to not just leave these injustices unaddressed. So I hope that you see and are encouraged uh, as you look out at what's happening in the world today that God, first of all, is not okay with oppression. He's not okay with people being taken advantage of. And two, that he's wanting to step in and he's going to step in and do things to defend them, to heal, to bring reconciliation. And then he's inviting us in to participate with him, trusting in his plans and the ways that he's going forward. Amen. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful that you, you care for us. That you care when we're being mistreated. That you care that we are being taken advantage of and that you are going to step in and defend those who cannot defend themselves. Thank you that you have this great plan to work things towards redemption, reconciliation for all of us. We all need it. We all need your forgiveness and your grace. Please show us ways to participate in what you're doing, the work that you're doing, that we might find joy in it, that we uh, might just be a part of you setting people free, that you you healing people, and you uh, undoing the ways that we are hurting each other. Um, God, if anyone out there is looking for a place to turn to for healing, turn to for help, um, please show them that you are there, and that you have all that is necessary to help them, and that you want to help them. You're you yearning for that. You desire for them to turn to you to find life. Please do that for anyone who wants it. In Jesus' name, amen.